Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to a uh, fireside chat with a very good friend of the firm, uh, Sarah Tavel. Sarah is a, a general partner at, at Benchmark. Before that, Greylock. Before that, Pinterest. And before that, Bessemer. Sarah, thank you for, for joining us and Good for speaking to, to our Network Catalyst uh, entrepreneurs and for, for coming on the podcast. I wanted to start with where you are most excited right now from an investor, and then we'll get into some company building thoughts. And some of the topics we were just talking about were education. You've made one bet in the crypto space, chain yeah. analysis. Yeah. You've been looking at vertical marketplaces. Mm-hmm. You made a bet at uh, HipCamp. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start there? Education. Yeah. Where is the opportunity that's been notoriously a category that venture capitalists oh have not been excited so about or have true. been burned by? It's uh, so true. Our partner, Andwayne, knows all about that. So why don't, yes. you, why don't you, you talk about why now and, and where are you interested? It's a great framing. Like, um, so many of the education companies that have been founded before, they've been a little bit too much of, like, trying to do good in the world. Yeah. And Unfortunately, (laughs) I know it's like I, you know, people, you know, I believe in the seven deadly sins for consumer investing. Like, you know, it's really hard to to get people to be the best version of themselves. It just is. But when you think about greed and you think about fear and all these things, I mean, what is the biggest problem that's happening in the United States right now for young people? It's not just the United States. It's in in Europe also. It's student debt, the cost yeah. of education. And it's because we have this antiquated system with our universities where you go into this four-year program, the inflation rate yeah. has been obscene because it's been, like, there's a, a bunch of different distortions that have created this inflation problem. And so you have people coming out of college with six figures of student debt, and, and then rate, wages have basically been stagnant for a long time. I mean, they're just starting now to kind of creep up, but... That's a pretty bad recipe. At the same time, you have healthcare costs going up. Rent is the highest it's ever been as a percentage of income. Homeownership is down. Like, gig, like people are more responsible for their own costs because of the gig economy than ever before. So it's like, whoa, there are a lot of problems happening. Yeah. And so the things that have been really interesting to me or I've been spending time on are what are the disruptions that aren't about, they aren't solving the problems that people have downstream when they want to become better versions of themselves, but they're actually solving that immediate problem, right. which is almost can smell more like a SoFi than a, yeah. a uh, tutoring company, yeah. which is you know things like what Lambda's doing. There's a bunch of different variations of companies right now. I won't say the names because I'm actually meeting with a bunch of them right now <laughs> that are all... What spaces do they occupy? Well, it's like turning the idea of a university on its head and saying, you don't actually have to go to university to get that credential, to get that job. You can get a high-paying job elsewhere. And many of the coding academy schools have been focused on people when they're, you know, they already have problems with student debt and everything else, but can you create an alternative to this, like to the four-year college? that gives you what you need and then gets you a higher paying job, I think there's so much opportunity yeah. there. So and if, it's cool. if we look at the companies in the past few years that have done somewhat well, if I understand them correctly, yeah. I think Class Dojo or, or Clever mm. are more an 
enablement, yeah. enabling technologies. So, uh, one of the reasons why people hate EdTech, in addition to the, what I described before, is because you don't want to sell to schools. Yeah. Class Dojo, um, Edmodo, which is a company we were investors in at Benchmark, you know, Clever, try to extract money from school districts. Well, actually, Class Dojo sells to parents, but yeah. the other ones try to get money out of school districts, and schools just don't have money. And so that's been, like, it's an expensive sales process, and you can't get a lot of revenue yeah. out of it. That's a really hard way to build right. a business. Class Dojo has been interesting because they're getting money out of the parents, right. which is an, a pool of money that is a pocket you can take money out of. Yep. But it's still hard. Um, yeah. So, so but yeah, there's just it's such a complicated ecosystem. Right. But now we're seeing companies just trying to disrupt and build almost yes. parallel systems. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What can we learn from old school? Do you know? You know, old school. I, what I would say with old school, there's so many things. <laughs> uh, will that company like that be no, successful? Uh, will a company like that be successful? Building just a full stack? Not, not venture scale. I think it's really hard to build a retail concept that is a fully integrated school. I think that's really hard. There's so yeah. many things you have to get right. But like what old schools pivoted towards is just doing the content, not right. actually running the schools themselves. So yeah. it felt like it was almost, they took too much on right. too quickly. And so I think maybe one of the big lessons is just focus. Get You always, like my personal belief with companies is that you want to get one thing right. And yeah. You want to find, and that thing can be really small in the beginning, but get that one thing really right. And then the great companies and the great teams, what they're able to do is they get one thing right, and they unlock a new opportunity, and then get another thing right, yeah. and unlock a new opportunity. I think sometimes people they don't want to build something small, so they start off with a really big ambition, yeah. and they go for this point. You're not going to win when you do right. that. Let's transition to, to crypto. So okay. you you spend a lot of time sur mm -hmm. surveying this space. You made one bet in the space, and the bet wasn't, it's not like the next Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the sexiest yes. uh, sexiest bet. What, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, what I mean, yeah. So how did you sort of survey the space? What, what did yeah. you take from it, and where do you sort of see the, the venture opportunities, and, and why, why change? Um, many people, like many people, I read the Bitcoin white paper a while ago. I was always enchanted by the idea it was a th reading about Ethereum and the idea of smart contracts. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with that concept, but just this idea of like self-executing contracts that you know you don't need a third party to like verify that it's that it's executed, but it can just happen automatically on this blockchain. It was like there was this. I remember this quote: "In the future, we'll have hackers, not lawyers." And that, as a philosophy major, I was like, yeah. so I started to spend a lot of time when I was at Greylock. Uh, looking at into crypto, I won't go into too much detail, but like when I moved over to Benchmark, I decided I'm going to do crypto. And so I spent so much time reading white papers, medium posts, talking to anybody I could. And what was happening at the time was that everybody was investing in this, this thesis people call the fat protocol thesis, which is this idea like, oh, if you could invest in the HTTP, I, I see, like, IP of the internet, you would be very rich, mm -hmm. TCP IP. And so everybody was trying to do that with crypto. Uh, and they were investing in all these underlying protocols. And there was billions of dollars from venture capitalists and people who probably made a shit ton of money, all this money coming into the ecosystem. And it felt like people were building infrastructure to me and there was like this, like, if we build it, the use cases will come. Yeah. And 
That, you know, I, we have a saying at Benchmark, which is that our job as investors is not about predicting the future, it's about seeing the present clearly. And I felt like all these VCs that were investing in these protocols were trying to predict the future. They were trying to predict what the use cases would be, and, and they were dreaming about ordering an Uber from, like, a car from the cloud, and Airbnb, like, you know, decentralized Airbnb. And there were, like, all these concepts, like, that were basically mimics of the centralized world that we have. And they just didn't feel to me like they were native and really understood what was important about crypto. And so I was like, well, I don't want to invest in the underlying infrastructure, but I do want to invest in this space. What are the use cases that exist right now? And there was, there was three. There was one that was obviously store of value, which Bitcoin has largely, like, and I expect will be kind of the major store of value in crypto. There was fundraising, which at the end of the day was what Ethereum was really doing well, which was helping people raise money. And then there was criminal activity. And I was like, ah! <laughs> um, and I knew I wasn't going to invest in the next Silk Road or Mt. Gox, but I was like, gosh, you know, it doesn't matter what the price of Bitcoin is going to be. There's always going to be criminal activity that happens with cryptocurrencies. And like, it's kind of one of those things where you can't put the horse back in the barn, yeah. as they say. And so we started to poke around and ended up speaking to a woman, Kitty Han, who actually ended up joining Andreessen in their crypto fund. And, but before that was a, an investigator for the DOJ. And she told me that when they were doing the investigations for Silk Road and Mt. Gox, they used this tool called Chainalysis to do those investigations. And so I spoke to the Chainalysis team, and was just ended up being really impressed and realized that this was a piece of infrastructure that actually enabled the whole ecosystem. Because if you're a regulated entity that participates in between fiat and crypto, you have to be able to prove to U.S. regulators that you're not in the middle of a money laundering scheme, or you're not funding, you know, you're not unwittingly fund, funding terrorists. And so ended up investing in Chainalysis, and it's been uh, they've been doing pretty well. Yeah. But why not uh, some of the some of the fintech infrastructure? Like why not? I mean, Coinbase is obvious today. Yeah, but Coinbase, we missed it. Things like Tagomi or or thing, you know, brokerage or, yeah. or things that are trying to you know remodel the traditional Wall Street, but in, in the crypto world, yeah, they're yeah. helping people buy, sell, store. I you know I looked like the thing that like I looked at Tagomi. There's a lot of companies there. I, I miss Coinbase. It was when I was in Pinterest, but I probably would have missed it anyway. But, like, those all rely on the price of, you know, on volatility and the price of, you know, these currencies. Even Coinbase today, like, their revenues are based on transactions, which is based on what the price of Bitcoin is and Ethereum and all the other tokens. But really, it's, I mean, the dominance of Bitcoin still continues to be pretty strong. And what the, how much transaction, how what the price is. And so, so many of these deals, Tagomi included, got done, SFOX got done during, like, the ascendant time. And it just felt to me like it wasn't a good time. It wasn't a good way to time the market yeah. or play the market. But a chain analysis, like what was so interesting to me is like it doesn't matter how many transactions happen. It matters how many entities want to participate in, in that bridge between fiat and crypto. But there, I believe that there's so much room to run there. Yeah. But, you know, so we've stayed. I mean, we've done, we did an exchange called Bitstamp a while ago. Um, we're investors in Zappo, which is uh, yeah. one of the wallets and a custody Bitcoin custody product. Let's transition to vertical marketplaces. Okay. Uh, what is your sort of broader thesis around them? How, how have they 
how has that thesis evolved over time or how have they evolved over time? Where are you, where are you I looking? I don't know if I have a great thesis. It's in so, or why are you looking at it? Well, I mean, I think like we're continuing to unbundle so many different organizations, a lot of these staffing agencies. And I'd say that the first, you know, I've, I spent a lot of time, me and my partner, Bill Gurley, we spent a lot of time looking at marketplaces. And, and it's been very focused on consumer marketplaces thus far, but we're seeing an emerging category of company that's building marketplaces uh, in a B2B world. You know, um, there's these giant staffing agencies that um, have been around for decades, if not centuries. Like, I mean, they're just like so old and they have these antiquated models and you're starting to see startups come in and basically unbundle these staffing agencies and do what you would expect the internet to do, which is do better matchmaking, lower costs, and these different verticals. And so you see it in healthcare, in finance, what else? And like, I mean, even within healthcare, it's like travel nursing, temporary nursing, per diem nursing. You know, it's like there's so many different areas. And then think about every category in healthcare. And can these companies be venture scale at a level? That's that's the big question. That is the question behind so many companies right now, um, especially because incumbents are just so strong, particularly on the consumer side. Right. But but there is a question of if you own travel nursing, I mean, we passed on all the travel nursing companies because it's a three billion market, you know, three billion, like right. most of the markets, people think that a billion dollar market is a big market. It's not. Yep. You know, we look at, you know, tens, if not hundred billion, hundreds of billion dollar markets. And so you're starting with a $5 billion, $3 billion, $5 billion market. And they, they talk about the play. You know, I do believe in that, you know, get something right, move on to the next. But it has to be a natural progression. And it doesn't feel yeah. like that to me in many of these markets. It feels like you get stuck in your vertical. Yep. And while someone else is going after all the adjacent verticals, and you never really get to go beyond the one you yeah. started. That's a risk. So your life partner, Christine, yeah. is a CEO of Evidation, uh, yes, which yeah, is yeah. A, a scaling healthcare com- company. How have you and uh, Benchmark approached uh, healthcare? With fear. <laughs> <laughs> it's but you, you, made, you guys made a few bets. You know, that. it's funny. Like, my wife, she has been telling me for two <laughs> or three years when I came back to Venture that I should be looking at healthcare and I should be looking at healthcare, that healthcare tech. And now she's like, don't do it. <laughs> oh my God. It is just like one of those worlds where the more you understand, the more you realize how fucked up it is. Like, there's a reason. Like, it's kind of one of these spaces where you're just like, what a giant market. What a huge pain. Like, there's just so much that's broken in healthcare. And it's going to cripple this country just with the rising healthcare costs. And it's just amazing how many people are going to be working in our healthcare system. It's just like now and then into the future. And yet the incentive structure is going through a transition, which is what creates, is going to value-based pricing, which is what creates this opportunity. But it's just, it's like one of those things where people, it's like, it's going to be, people say this about crypto too, like, it's going to be in the next five years, and then it's been saying that for like twenty years. Um, <laughs> VR. And so, yeah, VR. Like, and so it just healthcare is really hard. Bill is the one who he spent a year learning about the space, talking to everybody he could, trying to unlock it, and and we just we made a couple of investments, but it's just been really hard. Yeah. 
So you're a traditional consumer investor, yeah. really large. We were talking earlier how you know consumer social has been at a yes. low period. Yeah. Talk about how, the evolution there and where where you think that could potentially change in the future. The way I describe social right now is it's I call it 95% read, 5% write. You know, you are. You, if you think about what Facebook was, Facebook started at Harvard when I was there. I was just telling Eric what a slacker I was because. Pete Buttigieg was my year. Mark Zuckerberg was two years younger. Like the guy who discovered CRISPR, one of the people who discovered CRISPR was my year. So I'm slacker. But maybe if you um, were majoring in philosophy, you could have I know, done something. I know. Like, um, <laughs> I'm just but like when Facebook started, it was 100% read. Like there was no participation. It was just like, who's the cute person in my class? Like you got to do that type of stuff. And they have introduced more and more features that let you participate. In the conversation, you know, it lets you, and like similar on Instagram, like you're liking things, you're commenting, you're reacting, but it's still this structure where it's very heavily skewed towards the, you know, reading someone else's content. And Facebook's own research talked about how when you spend time in that passive mode in these social experiences, you feel more anxious, more disconnected, lonelier, and less happy after that experience. Than when you're actually participating in it, and I think that's what's behind Discord. I think it's what's behind the messaging apps becoming so ascendant, and WhatsApp included. I think it's behind Fortnite, yeah. and so I kind of think that we're on this, the precipice, and it's and it's going to be hard. But Facebook has shot themselves enough in their foot, in their feet, I guess you could say, that they have so much that they have to get right. Uh, including Zuck coins, or uh, um, they have so much they have to get right that they're going to be really distracted and they can't innovate as much as they'd like to. And I think there's an opportunity to create a new era of social, which I'm calling participatory, the participatory era, which is this idea that you're creating social experiences where it's about 50-50 read-write. Yeah. And what would that look like? Yeah. And do you think that's enabled by a new platform shift, or is it similar but just Radically different approach. I think it's going to look more. It's going to be more about groups. Um, you know, groups is one of those things that also these vertical networks. But you know, that's been talked about for such a long time. And Facebook has owned a lot with yeah. their groups. But I think that's going to change. And you see that with Discord. Like Discord has dominated gaming yeah. as a vertical. And I think there are going to be other ones that emerge right. like that. And how do you look at gaming or, or esports? I'm super interested. I actually, yeah. over over the holidays, I was I said to Christina, I was like, "I'm sorry, honey, I have to I have to go work <laughs> and play Fortnite, so I can <laughs> so I can uh, understand. Uh, better understand kids." And I did actually lie about my age on, on when someone were you like, like I'm 15? Oh, yeah, my girl was like, "How old are you?" I was like, "27." <laughs> <laughs> didn't lie that much, but yeah. I did lie. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I think that what I think is just very obvious is that you see the progression of the kids who played Minecraft to Roblox to Fortnite to like other games and like percentage of time spent in these third spaces, and that is only going to continue to go up. Where that's not going to go in the other direction. Yeah, you had a big thesis a, a few years ago around save you time or save yeah, save yeah. money. Mm-hmm. Unpack that thesis a little bit and how that has evolved or where that is today. I'll take a step back just to give context to it, which is I think there are so many companies that try to create experiences for consumers. And 
what is very easy to focus on is what I'll call like the 10x product. And I remember this is the insight came to me when I was thinking a lot about Uber. It was like Uber was just growing like crazy. It was ascendant, and all these other companies came up. This is like the on-demand wave of startups, and you could do anything with a push of your button. Like it was, people were talking about the phone as a remote control of your life. Excuse me. So it was you can get your dry cleaning. You can have someone park your car. You can have your groceries. You can, you know, and everybody was focused on, oh, Uber is about convenience. It's about that push the button, get the car, and that's 10x better than what the existing product was. But I realized that what people missed that Uber got so right is that it was 10x better and cheaper than the incumbent product, which was taxis. And so all these other companies were adding these incremental costs to someone. Like the parking your car thing was just such a Silicon Valley company to make. <laughs> um, but, you know, washing your clothing, dry cleaning, all those things. They were focused on the 10x, and they were missing that cost is such an important part of the equation if you want to build a mass market company. Because people, most of the country, this is a lesson I really learned at Pinterest. Most of the country is not does not look like us in Silicon Valley. It's a very different group of people, and so you, as a as an entrepreneur, you don't want to build a company that caters to the top one percent. You want to build a company that caters to everybody, to as much as possible as a mass market company. And the key in my mind to doing that, if you're building a transactional business, a business where you need a consumer at the end of the day to give you their credit card or their money in some form, is to do that. Yeah. And I, I think that continues to be a timeless thesis for companies. Right. And how do you think about the idea of when it's something that only the one percent are doing now, but over time it'll, you know, more mass market. For example, like maybe it's a bad example, but you invest in Hip Camp. Yeah. Are is the average person camping today? Maybe they are. I don't know. But like that's growing o- over time. Yeah, yeah. How do you think about growing? Uh, well, I think that the ones that start with the one percent and like everybody, there's so many people that say, we're, you know. They have Teslas or slide, and like the Tesla master plan was, you start with the sports yeah. car, and then you get to the thirty thousand yeah. dollar sedan, and and of course Uber started this yeah. way in a way. Like Uber, was it an accident that Uber started this way? I don't know, but like Uber started this way with black cars, and so there's been so many companies, but each time it's a completely new product. Yeah. That you know, it's a pretty new product that you have to do. Like you can't just evolve a product. Well, you have to like do something different, and it's funny. Like Uber figured out Uber X because of Lyft, which figured it out from another company. Like it wasn't as much an evolution as it was like a step function change that happened. Right. But I think like the the case of Amazon to me is far more common, which is that you start with something that's really hard and really thin margined. And then you get that really right. You train yourself. You get all the right muscles, all the right habits, and then you go from there into more profitable things. That's a much easier path to go than solving something for this one percent and then believing that economies of scale or a product innovation is going to get you to move down into a different yeah. into the mass market. I just think that's a really hard thing to bet on. Right. And so uh, let's talk about growing markets and look at Hipcamp as an example. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you, you at the time your investment you thought it was a 
underappreciated market. People yeah. didn't realize how big it was, but then also that it was going to grow significantly. Yes, yeah. How do you think about uh, analyzing when you think markets are going to grow significantly versus mm. when, hey, hey, they're small and niche for yeah, a reason? Yeah, yeah. So what I always think about uh, is two things for you guys, which is, one, like, you want to have a wind in your sails. You know, like, there's this great Mark Andreessen quote, which I think he took from someone else. It actually wasn't a Mark Andreessen. It was someone else, um, maybe Munger, who said, when a great team wins... Uh, meets a, a great market, everybody wins. When a great team meets a bad market, the, t- the market keeps its reputation. And I don't know if you guys have heard this yeah. quote. So, like, you don't, and I probably mangled it, uh, you don't want to go after a bad market. And so the way that you make sure you're going after a good market is you want to have a why now that creates a win in your sales. Yeah. Like for Hip Camp, what I realized for Hip Camp was, like, one... Uh, national parks, like the attendance in national parks has never been higher. People are like, you know, living in these urban environments, they're connected to technology all the time, and they need to get out. They want to connect with nature. And so you like look at pictures of like Half Dome, and there's like this long line, you know, to get in. The, the, the parks are, you can't sleep there because they've been booked months in advance. And so you've got this like dramatic, supply demand imbalance that was very very stark and i even looked at like number of people searching for camping uh google trends is a great tool you can use to see how like how if people are searching for something more over time and the the trend line was that camping was growing as as people more and more people wanted to get out and millennials you know at instagram they're seeking experiences so there were all these things where i was like okay this is actually a market that has that's a wind in our sails that's going to push us forward. Yeah. And then the second thing is you look for adjacencies. So like obviously Amazon started off with a super small market, but then they were able to use what they'd built and to grow into other adjacencies. Hipcamp started off with land that you bring your own tent and food and water filter and you you literally camp overnight in the stars on with nothing. That is not me. But like, and so I think about like, I'm a New Yorker. And so I think about like, it was I, what I always talk about with Alyssa, the CEO, is that you've got this upside down pyramid where you've got this very small group of people who are the campers, who are like hardcore campers and know how to pee in the bushes. But you've got to move up the market, up that pyramid to the glampers. And so as you kind of get your thing right here, you unlock that next opportunity, which is the glampers. And what ended up, what they started to see happen was that the landowners that had people camping on their land took some of that money and invested it in building a treehouse or putting a yurt there. And by doing that, they opened up the market to this new group of people who were more comfortable doing that type of camping. They made more money for it, and they started to open up that addressable market. And you can imagine that a hip camp or someone else could continue to do that by making camping more accessible right. and and uh, and continue to just go up that that upside down pyramid. Yeah. So, wind in your sales in adjacent markets. So if the Peter Thiel school of evaluating markets yeah. is yeah. own a niche, dominate that niche, and look for yes. adjacencies, and the Keith Raboy school of market analysis or looking at markets is find a trillion dollar market, real you know, and build open door in real estate, build forward in healthcare, you know, vert- you know vertically integrated full stack solutions. Are you more I'm more teal. Yeah. yeah, I'm much more. I'm, yeah. yeah, I didn't right. know that that's what he said, but that's yeah. exactly how I yeah. think. And uh, why not the, the Raboy? Uh, 
camp? Uh, I think you need a lot of money to build those types of products. Right. And that's a business. It's, it's go big or go home. And I just think there are a lot, there's a, I see a lot more examples of companies that have gone something really right yeah. and then moved on to the next thing. I, I, I think they're really hard. Yeah. And Open Door is a big company, but there's still a lot to prove in yeah. terms of whether that's a success or not from an equity value perspective. Yeah. How have you thought about media? So was there any world in which you know, Medium, which is different kind of company, Medi- yeah. Medium or BuzzFeed or Cheddar, mm-hmm. any of these companies were going to be venture back in, in your yeah. venture scale, in your opinion. And yeah. how do you sort of contrast that with you know, differently what Pinterest really figured out? What was sort of key insight and why that wasn't, why didn't Facebook or Twitter build, yeah. build that? Yeah, I mean, the challenge with media is just the cost structure. It's, a, it's I mean, it's so many things. It's A, cost structure. It's B, the moat that you build over time more than anything ends up being the the brand that you build and that association and and it you're just the mo- the monetization model is so hard like people aren't on buzzfeed to you know buy like uh, something necessarily yeah. they don't have purchase intent which is why the rpms or you know cpms on the advertiser side tend to be pretty low for media i just don't see how those are venture scale businesses and there's also the risk. I mean, like, what would BuzzFeed be without Jonah? I think that's pretty tough. Uh, what Pinterest got right is that, well, A, like, the users create the content. Yeah. And so the cost structure of that is about building the technology to, we, we think of Pinterest as a marketplace, where it's your content, the, the pins, and your users. So you've got the users doing all the work for you. Right. Because they're, they're combing the web. They're finding the things that they love. They're bringing it to Pinterest. They're cataloging it on a board. They're writing a description of it. I mean, you couldn't pay people enough to make that business model work and get what you're getting. Like, it just wouldn't work. So that's, like, number one. Number two is that it's a network effect business. Like, the discovery experience gets better on Pinterest the more people use the product because each time you pin something to a board, you're creating a new edge in the interest graph that connects those two objects to each other. And so it's like the experience gets better. Like if you did a search for cupcakes in the beginning of Pinterest, like it would have been one picture and it would have been a woman with a parrot on her shoulder. (laughs) Don't ask me why, but that's what happened. And so, you know, the results have improved a lot in, you know, five years and, and there's just a lot of opportunity there. And then the third thing is that the monetization, like you think about a native ad unit, in the same way that like Google sponsored links was the best business model of all time because you're doing a search and they're just sponsored results, but it's the same type of content. On Pinterest, it's actually the same thing, yeah. which is that the native ad unit is a pin that is a recommendation for you if you're in the home feed or aligned with your search query. And people have a lot of intent, and it's a reason why they're, you know, it's. The plan, I think, is a billion dollars of revenue this year, according to analyst reports. Yeah. And so I think that's uh, that's a pretty special combination. Yeah. We were talking earlier about marketplaces. We were talking about yeah. unbundling. David Sachs had a post recently where he said that LinkedIn is the new Craigslist. Yeah. Uh, so is there an element of that that is, that is true or could be true? By uh, the way, we were upset when we saw that because that's a thesis that we've been thinking about and pursuing. 
It's always annoying when someone else yes. tweets it first. <laughs> yes. But it's like absolutely um, an area that we're, I mean, it's part of the vertical marketplaces right. that I talked about. Like there's, you know, without question, an unbundling of LinkedIn that we think is a really big opportunity because, you know, LinkedIn, I mean, you know, who's had a good experience with like anything on it besides the fact that I use it all the time. <laughs> Because the network effect is so strong. <laughs> but like, we're, we are the target market. I mean, it's like, who is the most engaged demographic of people? Venture capitalists yeah. and recruiters. But like, it just feels like in so many verticals, there's going to be opportunities yeah. to build something that I think is a really interesting opportunity. And so do you, like, what will the Airbnb like company come out of, to use the Craigslist example, like, will it be, LinkedIn for develop like for specific categories. Possibly, or, yeah. yeah, yeah, without question. So let's get to some of the uh, the company building ideas that, that we discussed. Yeah. one of the things you you've thought a lot about as a board member is building leadership team. So so what have you uh, learned as you've watched and advised your uh, your entrepreneurs mm. in terms? So of- this is like, if I if you walked away with one piece of advice from me, this is like the big thing that I realized is one of the hardest transitions a CEO has to make, but like. If you're going to build a successful company, you have to do it, which is, oh, that was a big buildup, which is you start off when you're a CEO being really the CEO of the product. You know, you're 100% focused on getting that product mar- right, figuring out product market fit with your, with your co-founder, like doing whatever it takes to find that like really hot place that I talked about where you get something right and you can open up other opportunities. But there comes a time where the CEO has to transition from being the CEO of the product to being the CEO of the team. Or really what I think of it is like the CEO of the system that builds a system. And so what I mean by that is that I think people hold on to that job of being CEO of the product too long. And what you really have to be thinking about, like until you have product market fit, hold on to that, you know, clench it with uh, white you know, knuckles. But once you figure out your product market fit, you have to start making yourself redundant. And you have to start creating a system of accountability where you're, bringing, you're pulling forward those incredible executives who do something functionally better than you ever could and empowering them and making them accountable. But like, that is a very big transition for a lot of teams to make. And I find that when we invest, it tends to be the CEO who is the CEO of the product and then, and I remember when I joined Pinterest, we, Ben was the CEO of the product. And part of the transition we had to do that I experienced from the inside and have since experienced as a board member is that CEO transitioning through that. And when people say that a CEO doesn't scale, what they mean is that they haven't been able to transition from being the CEO of the product to building the system that builds the system. Yeah. And that's... That's such a big lesson. Let's unpack that in a few ways. First, yeah. how do you define product market fit? Or when people think they have it, but they don't, or people don't realize they yeah. have it, what does that look like? I mean, I love the Sean Ellis question, which is asking, I hate net promoter score. I think it's BS. But like Sean Ellis has this question, which is, if you asked, if you polled your, your customers and you asked them, how disappointed would you, like it's, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but it's like, would you be, it's like, how disappointed would you be if this company went out of business? So you need 40% of people to say very disappointed. That to me feels like product market fit. 
Yeah. Like, if people don't care, like, there's so many things where, like, if the, if the product went away, like, I just got this Aura Ring, which is, like, a sleep tracker. If it went away, but, like, if Uber went away, I mean, yeah. like, that would be a pretty big deal for, I mean, I guess we could use Lyft, so there's kind of, like, that's actually part of their challenge, you know? But so it's such a important question to understand, and it's, I think that promoter, I, I like I just don't believe in that promoter because I think it doesn't actually get to value, you know, of like what you're providing to the customer. Yeah. And do you think uh, the same thing applies in consumer social cuz things ride up and down so quickly and yeah. maybe when it when it oh, like for maybe sure. they're not the best judges yeah, yeah. of how upset they would yeah. be <laughs> if if it when it doesn't go. It's a fair question. I think people, yeah, you, know, you could ask like users of Fortnite basically yeah. is your kind of point. Yeah. And they would they probably have conflicting feelings, but be pretty disappointed. Yeah. Uh, and then they reach a point where they stop playing. Yeah. But I don't know. I think Fortnite's pretty sticky. Yeah. And so when but I don't know if I I don't I, don't I guess think what I have I'm saying is when question. I folded Wrapped FM, which was the Skype for Rap Battles uh, website, people were very disappointed. And I'm, I'm telling myself it was still a good idea because it, it wasn't that big of a of a community and wasn't going to grow. But uh, sometimes it's hard to make. Well, that it's call. a good point. So I think part of the Sean Ellis thing that you have to understand is. We have to double click on who are the people yeah. that are saying they would be very disappointed, and then are there enough of those people? Yeah. So we were talking about building leadership team. When you're moving from CEO to product, yeah. CEO of the company, what do the great CEOs do that that the good or or not as good CEOs don't do? I mean, I think they aggressively pursue talent. Like Stitch Fix, Cat, pretty early on, like the first ten employees of the company. Cold emailed on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, the head of data science at Netflix and the COO of Walmart.com and hired both of them. Wow. She barely had anything. And she was just like, I just didn't know I shouldn't do that. (laughs) And she met them and pulled them in. And like the best CEOs, I mean, they are able to close talent that are just so ahead of what you would expect. And that's actually one of the things that we look for when we're evaluating a company or a founder is how is this person going to be for recruiting and closing talent? Because it is a huge determiner of success. So that's, that's number one. And I think like sometimes people will have a blind spot where they feel they don't want to be yeah. threatened by someone. I even say Ben in the beginning um, at Pinterest didn't really have a strong head of product because he and Evan didn't want to let go of yeah. product. So there are some areas where that can actually be okay because I think product is one of those areas where you have to be intimately involved as a consumer CEO. But in everything else, yeah. like if you are not pulling forward that talent, you're just going to be in big trouble. I think the second thing is like, okay, now that you have the people, how do you make them accountable? Because it's not just that you hire the great people and then you let them do your job, their job, because they're never going to think about the company the way you as a CEO think about the company. You know, you're going to have this holistic view, whereas someone who is hired in as your head of sales is just going to be focused on selling. And you have to be, you know, there has to be someone who's overlooking everything and helping prioritize, helping keep people accountable. And the third thing is like, look, People are good for a period of time in a company, and then they stop scaling. And you have to just be hyper-vigilant about where are the holes in your organization and who 
should needs to be up leveled. What are the new roles that you have to add, and what the org structure is to make sure that everybody works well together. Yeah, metrics and, and KPIs, mm. uh, North Star for businesses. What, yeah. what, what mistake do you see entrepreneurs often make there, so or what? Uh, what did counsel yeah, yeah. do you So I, if anybody ends up reading my blog, they'll know that I'm a stickler for this subject, which is that. I think that there are so many mistakes companies make when they think about what they think about their KPIs. One is the fact that it's a plural. Like I think that you have to early on pick like what's the OKR, what's the objective that's most important for your business, and you have to be so intellectually rigorous with that number because that number will create a blindness in your company. That imagine if, like, when you choose one number, which is what you should do, because like every team might have a different number that rolls up into the main company number, but you have to have one thing where you're like, this is the thing that we're increasing. This is the thing that our if our company is successful, it's going to be because we're increasing this number. For SaaS businesses, it's it's you know your ARR, CARR. For at Pinterest, it was uh, weekly active pinners. You know, and all these companies will have different metric, but you just have to assume that if you have that one metric, people are going to optimize for the metric that they're given, and that's going to create a blindness in your organization that will mean that the other metrics will just decay unless the, those metrics have to be better in order to move that one number. And, and I've seen people focus, when you focus on the wrong number, there can be a decaying happening in the rest of your business that you're blind to. And so just an example, if you just focused on, if you're a SaaS business, this is an extreme example, but you just focused on customer churn, logo churn, you might miss that like your bigger, and this is such an exaggerated version, but like you would miss that your bigger customers were churning and you were actually just maintaining your smaller customers. So it's much better to focus on revenue retention because if you're losing your big customers, you'll see it in the number. If you're losing your small customers, but you're gaining more revenue from your big customers, the number is going in the right direction. So it's all about finding a metric that really captures the full value that you want to create. And then you can have other metrics, but the intellectual rigor around that core metric is so important. And then people get lost in vanity metrics all the time, like MAUs, or it's just a metric that makes them feel good, that they are used to reporting to their investors, that they're used to talking about to their team, but it does it's a lowest common denominator metric, or it doesn't even actually have anything to do with the health of the business, is the most dangerous thing you can do, because then you end up optimizing for this number that doesn't matter, and you, it creates a blindness across so many different parts of the organization. So um, I want to, I have a couple more questions, but I want to open it up to questions from, from the audience. How did studying philosophy yeah. help you as a VC? So I, were you a philosophy major? So I think, <laughs> kudos. Uh, so I think uh, it's so similar. So I don't know what kind of, like I said, um, Kantian ethics. And, you know, you learn deductive logic, right? And what, like, what is a philosophy proof? A philosophy, philosophy proof it's kind of here are my premises, and deductively, like you can reach the conclusion. And I think that investing is basically here are my premises, you know, and like you can underwrite those premises 
with data from the company, your beliefs on the future, you know, kind of those why nows I talked about with HipCamp as an example. You know, obviously customer calls, doing research into the market. And basically, if you believe those, you know, who the potential acquirers are, like all those things are basically premises in your proof. And if you kind of believe them all, then the conclusion that follows is that you should invest. I actually think product documents, like when I was a product manager at Pinterest, it was the same thing, which is that you're underwriting the, you know, you're saying we should ship this product and here are the reasons why. And it's experiment results. It's analysis of your data. It's user research, like all these premises. But the logic is such that if you agree with all these things, and this is the way just I think, then the conclusion is you should, you should ship it. For the consumer companies, yeah. they're actually shipping product, like physical goods to them. How do you think about margins on that side? And they, well, I'll sell it for 75 cents today, but yeah. I'll get my dollar later. Yeah, yeah. How do you approach that? I'm, we, we don't invest in those businesses. Unit economics matter. Yeah, that. unit economics matter, and it's, you know, it's just so many people believe, like, tell themselves the sto- that story. And some of them pull out ahead. Like, I think Instacart, it sounds like, has really figured out a way to scale their model. I don't know a ton about it, but, um, but it seems like they're doing a good job. But there are so few of those stories. Um, and so it has to work from the beginning. Maybe not from day one, but, like, you have to have a very clear path, and it's not about this hope that margin will come in the future. Cool. Uh, in closing, I uh, want to end with a question we ask all of our guests on okay. the podcast, which is, uh, what is your net worth? What's the price of Bitcoin? No, yeah, that's, a, that's a great answer. Um, too real. Um, uh, so the uh, question is, what's something you believe that uh, about company building or about investing that maybe uh, other people don't, uh, don't believe or is uncommon to believe? Or what is something that you have changed your mind on uh, about company building or investing, uh, perhaps in the last you know couple of years oh since God. joining Benchmark. Can I, can I email you tomorrow? Yes. No, actually, this is one of the lessons that I got from Bill. Is I think at Greylock I was very focused. We were very focused as a firm on going after big markets, maybe a little bit more Keith. And the thing that I learned, and I just as I reflected on more and more, was that the best companies start off really freaking small. I mean, Dropbox was a, sounded like a feature. People thought Pinterest was a feature. People thought Airbnb was going to be super small. Facebook was, you know, super small. Like, these things start really small. And so, you know, I actually passed on the seed of HipCamp when I was at Greylock. Wow. Because I thought, hmm, this is a small market. And I realized when I, you know, have been spending time at Benchmark with, you know, with Bill and the other partners there that, that actually is what creates greatness. Uh, and so, you know, it's to the conversation we had before, there have to be adjacencies, there has to be a win in your sales that will unlock new opportunities. But I actually like things that smell small in the beginning. Cool. That's a great note to uh, close on. Let's give a round of applause for Thank Sarah. Thank you, guys. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.